Feel the rhythm. Feel the rhyme. Get on up. It's pamphlet time. Welcome to 32 Fans Movies, where we discuss all things movies, past, present, and occasionally future. My name is Sammy Chester. And I'm Will Simon. Today we're going to be talking about golf movies and tennis movies, part of our marathon to next year's grand sports movies tournament. The timing here is inspired by the British Open, of course, and Wimbledon. For those who might have missed our first uh, sports episode where we covered hockey and soccer, three movies from each sport go into next year's grand tournament were Red Army Miracle and Slapshot from hockey, and Damn United, Shaolin Soccer, and Bend It Like Beckham from soccer. So we'll see today which of the lucky tennis and golf movies have a chance to join them. But most importantly, today helping us decide is a very special guest, Chris Nashawati. Chris is a veteran film critic. He's written for Entertainment Weekly, also for Sports Illustrated, Esquire, and Wired. And he's the author of a 2018 book called Caddyshack, The Making of a Hollywood Cinderella Story, a movie that we'll most likely be talking about in more detail soon. Chris, what is your expertise really in all things golf, tennis, and movies? My expertise in movies is a lot stronger than my expertise in golf and <laughs> tennis. I play tennis. can't say I've ever seen a really good tennis movie, which I'm sure we'll sort of hash out as we work through the bracket. But golf, I'm not a player, but I am a fan, specifically of Caddyshack, which I wrote a book about. Are you and a fan of watching either sports if you don't play them? I do, you like- I do like watch. I am an armchair sports fan for sure. Of golf and tennis? Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. I feel like golf was always the one sport outside of Tiger Woods I've never managed to catch my eye. I don't know about... Uh, Will, are, are, you a te- are you a golf player as our, as our golf judge alongside Chris? I'm a big mini golf player, but not a big golf watcher. <laughs> mini golf definitely qualifies. We do have one movie, at least, that gives, I think, a lot of uh, shine to mini golf, but maybe the other movies don't really do it justice. Uh, Chris, to give you a sense before we jump into the sports that we are dealing with, I think, Will, this is fair. Your favorite movie of the year so far is Art of Self-Defense. Mine is Wild Rose, and Av is a big uh, booster for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. What movie would you say, Chris, is, has sort of stuck with you the most from the last, uh, what are we at, seven months, eight months at this point? You know, it's been a pretty good year for movies. I would say uh, of what I've seen recently, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, for sure, that really resonated with me. I loved it. But from earlier in the year, I have to say some of the some of the better films, the more surprising films came from the action genre. I really liked John Wick 3. I thought that was really, really fun. Ooh. And I like this little scene, grubby, violent action movie called Drag Cross Concrete yeah. uh, with Vince Vaughn and Mel Gibson. I thought that was really a movie that was special and that more people should have seen. Will, I think you and I touched on Dragged Across Concrete in the beginning of this year. Yeah, I think we did. I ended up seeing it, and I was a big fan uh, after I think you had recommended it to me. I was a much bigger fan of his last movie, uh, Brawl in Cell Block 99. Mm. I, I had some issues with Dragged Across Concrete, but he's a really great director that makes incredible action sequences. I'm really excited to see what he does next. I think that, and even his first movie, Bone Tomahawk, was really unexpectedly weird, great movie. He definitely takes his time. In his movies, in a way, he's a lot like Tarantino. He really lets scenes play out, and maybe he's a little bit too in love with him, but I really think that he's making movies in a way that's very, very exciting. Chris, maybe you could share a bit more why you became a movie critic, and how did you get into that? Yeah, I mean, I didn't start off to be a movie critic. I didn't study film in college. I sort of came into it through journalism. I began my career actually as a foreign correspondent in the Middle East. And then when I came back to the States, I got a job at Entertainment Weekly. And I was really writing more sort of celebrity profiles. And then, uh, forget the year, but it was probably six or seven years ago, one of the two main film critics at Entertainment Weekly left the magazine, Lisa Schwartzbaum, and she pulled me aside and she said, you know, hey, listen, I think you'd be really good at this. You should really try it. And I... I never considered myself a critic, but I gave it a shot. And for a while, I really felt like I was sort of an imposter doing it. And then it just, it sort of clicked a little bit and it became a little bit more fun. And I felt like I really started to have more to say about the movies. So I think it just sort of developed over time. Did you go from watching like your average viewer sees maybe two dozen movies a year? Did you go from something like that to seeing hundreds of movies a year? Was it that quickly? 
Well, even when I was not reviewing movies, I was still covering them. So I was still seeing a lot of movies. But for sure, as a critic, you're seeing at least five a week. I think I counted last year how many I had seen. It was like 320-something. And that was just movies that I had to see for work. You know, in my free time, I also like to watch movies that aren't new releases. At the end of the year, it was closer to like 400. Will may become a movie critic almost by accident, because I think Will watches the most movies of the three of us. Will, last year you, you cracked 200, no? Easily? Uh, yeah, yeah, I think so. I think Chris has got me beat, though. I'm trying to, get, hope so. trying to get up there, though. I, I would hope so. <laughs> One of the things, Chris, we discussed last month when we had another uh, movie critic guest on with us was that some sports movies are that, and others are a movie that has sports in it. I tend to like the ones that happen to have sports in them better than just straight-ahead sports movies. Any sports movie tries to be a metaphor for something bigger. So, you know, the less time we spend in the ring or on the ice or, you know, on the court or whatever is really where the most interesting stuff happens. We noticed when we covered soccer and hockey that there was a distinct DNA to a hockey movie. Av, you had mentioned that the actors have to skate. I think we, we were discussing how with Mighty Ducks, they turned down a lot of future stars uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and others because they simply couldn't hack it on the ice. Is there a distinct theme you think to a tennis movie and a golf movie? Something that makes it stand out from any other sports movie? In some ways, they are easier than like a, a baseball movie or a basketball movie where those sports are really sort of played only in certain, certain parts of the world really and they, you know, they don't translate as well as mm -hmm. sports that are a little, a little more broad like soccer. You were talking before about the actors have to look like they know what they're doing. That isn't always the case. Think about a movie like Bang the Drum Slowly with Robert De Niro, who can barely, like, passably throw a baseball, mm -hmm. um, being the star of that movie. Uh, I think that's why Kevin Costner's in so many sports movies, because he's such a natural athlete. So Kevin Costner and, what is it, Stifler, whose name I always forget, the actual actor. John and William Scott. There's a few comedians who've done a, a slew of sports movies. So I don't think uh, Will Ferrell necessarily qualifies as a natural athlete. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Golf and tennis, though, are... They're tough sports to crack cinematically. I think I golf wanna, is like... boring to watch. I think golf turns a lot of people off. And my dad has always said, you know, he finds golf like watching grass grow. I don't think any of the golf movies, maybe Happy Gilmer, goes the farthest to actually show an entire match from like first hole to ninth hole to, to last hole. I don't know how you make golf to look really exciting on screen unless you zoom in. There's a moment, though, in Tin Cup where, you know, he doesn't lay up and he keeps hitting it into the water. To me, that's like as tense as, as any sort of Hollywood thriller. You know what I mean? I, I think that that's just a perfect, perfect sequence. That's strictly like a golf scene. I'm going to explain quickly for listeners so we understand what's happening, particularly if you don't have the bracket in front of you, also to be guiding along. I'm going to be the MC. Will's going to be joining Chris as our golf judge. Av will then swap out Will later for the tennis movies. I'll be introing the movies, and if necessary, I'll give my third tiebreaker vote, but otherwise, hopefully... Chris, and then Will will sort of take care of all the judging. For each sport, we have a six-movie bracket. And for golf, we have a play-in game to decide the six seeds, since there was a, a strong number of movies we, we felt deserved attention. The seeding is based on the average scores of IMDb, Rotten Tomatoes, and Metacritic. The seeding does not impact, ultimately, which movies we decide are the winners here. If we left out any personal favorites, we do apologize for that. But otherwise, I think we're ready to decide. Chris and Will are ready to decide which are going to be our favorite golf movies on 32 Fans. Should we start with the play-in? Yeah, let's go. Um, the first of the four, okay. four play-in movies is Happy Gilmer. It came out in 1996. It's an Adam Sandler vehicle about upending the snobbish golf world. Probably, I think, a big theme we're going to see going forward. Golf has been waiting for a player like this. A colorful, emotional, working-class hero. I will not tolerate behavior like this. Gilmore is gone. I just got a call from the Dallas Open. Their phones have been ringing off the hook with people who want to see Happy. They just sold out. Already? I know, he's a little rough around the edges, but let me work with him. He's a monkey! The second play-in is The Legend of Bagger Vance. It came out four years later in 2000. It's a made-up story based in the 1930s. It has Matt Damon, he has PTSD, it has Will Smith, he's the magical caddy, and it's directed by Robert Redford. And then there's true, true life tales. There are two movies that are based on things that actually happened. The third movie in our play-in is 2005's The Greatest Game Ever Played, about the 1913 U.S. Open, when an American teenager unknown, played by Shia LaBeouf, won the Open, and that is said to have popularized golf in the U.S., 
And then we have 2017's Tommy's Honor, which is about the Scottish father and son that pioneered golf in the 1860s. Uh, the movie doesn't star any big names, but I believe Sean Connery's son did direct it. So there's a nice father and son theme there as well. So these are the four movies in the play in Happy Gilmer, The Legend of Bagger Vance, The Greatest Game Ever Played, and Tommy's Honor. Which one of those stands out to you, Chris? Which do you like? Well, it can't be Legend of Bagger Vance. Why not? As as I... Oh, it's a terrible, terrible movie. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to... I'm going to go with Happy Gilmore, just for the Bob Barker stuff. We haven't seen Happy Gilmore play this badly since his first day on tour. He and Bob Barker are now dead last. I can't believe you're a professional golfer. I think you should be working at the snack bar. You better relax, Bob. There is no way that you could have been as bad at hockey as you are at golf. All right, let's go. Oh! You like that, old man? You want a piece of me? I don't want a piece of you. I want the whole thing. Now you're going to get it, Bobby. The price is wrong, bitch. I think you've had enough. No? Now you've had enough. Bitch. There's a lot of worthy names in Happy Gilmore. Uh, yeah, I think Happy Gilmore is probably the, I'd say the second most iconic golf movie. Uh, probably that and the one we'll be talking about later, two that everyone knows. And I think it's also the best movie of those four. Will, had you seen any of these when they first came out? Not seen any of them when they like first came out. I saw Happy Gilmore uh, a few years back, though. From a filmmaking perspective, I would say maybe the greatest game ever played is the best one. But just in terms of pure enjoyment, it's hard to beat Sandler's only good movie. Not only good movie. Punch Drunk Love's pretty good. There you go. But other than that, Happy Gilmore. It's time to go home there, Ball. Son of a bitch, Ball. Why didn't you just go home? That's your home! Are you too good for your home? Answer me! Suck my white ass, Ball! Rolling Stone, they said it was the number one Adam Sandler movie of all time. Not much competition, but... I don't know. I was raised with Adam Sandler. His recorded hits, his songs, and then the movies were just icing on the cake. I'm born in the 80s, Chris, for, for context. I give Sandler um, a lot of credit for who I am. So, okay. so, so if, this is, if, if this is the best Sandler movie of all time, I think it's going to be hard to beat. Happy Gilmer rightfully emerges as the play-in winner. That means it's our number six seed. It's going to be going up against number three movie, which is Dead Solid Perfect. It came out in 1988. It stars Randy Quaid. It's the only straight modern golf movie, meaning it's not playing the movie for laughs. And it's about a middle-of-the-road PGA tour in the late 1980s who's trying to figure his life out. I think it got the high rating it did. It's probably the least known movie, though, in this golf bracket. I'm not a fan of the movie. I'm a, I'm a big fan of the book by Dan Jenkins. Uh, it's one of the great golf books. I'm into the idea of golf as a metaphor for life. There's a lot there to chew on, but I think the movie basically whiffs on it. I'm not buying Randy Quaid in this movie, but I'm always happy to see Jack Warden turn up on film. The scene that stood out for me in the movie where his wife and his mistress have that sort of back and forth in the restaurant. Mm. It was very nice meeting you. Some women have a hard time dealing with it, Beverly. With what? Can you just imagine all he can't help but be like, there are trouble for the girls and the happiness. I'm sorry, has anybody got a pen? I have got to write that down. That was the only scene that I was thinking about the day after I saw the movie. They have a lot of great lines back. I don't know, is that taken from the book? I believe it's in the book, yeah. Good book, good, good script. Chris, you didn't give your vote. So you have Dead Solid Perfect going up against Happy Gilmore. I'm still sticking with Happy Gilmore. I think it's insane that Dead Solid Perfect even made it into this bracket. Like the only way you can watch it now is by someone recording uh, their TV screen with a phone. I guess they're watching a VHS copy of Dead Solid Perfect. The movie is on YouTube is what Will is trying to say. Yeah, on YouTube. (laughs) It's insane. I feel like no one has even heard of this movie. Chris has seen this movie. And he yeah, actually, I mean, he has a very good take on it as well. Props to you, Chris. Um, I'm definitely not a big Randy Quaid guy in general. I really wasn't feeling this one. So I got to go with Happy Gilmore as well. Dead Solid Perfect might get another chance because we do have a loser's bracket. You have to lose twice to be knocked out of this tournament, but Happy's going on. Let's go to our other round one matchup. It's number four, Caddyshack versus number five, Tin Cup. Arguably the 
the toughest, certainly the toughest round one matchup and maybe the, the toughest matchup in this entire bracket. I will try not to say much about Caddyshack because we have Chris here who can tell all of us far more than I possibly was able to research. But the movie came out in 1980. The simple description is it's Animal House on a golf course. Directed by Harold Ramis, the writer of Animal House, who also, of course, wrote Ghostbusters and directed Groundhog Day. It stars Rondi Dangerfield, Chevy Chase, most of the Murray brothers, including, of course, Bill Murray. He's got to be pleased with that. The crowd is just on his feet here. He's a Cinderella boy. Uh, tears in his eyes, I guess, as he, as he lines up this last shot. He's got about 195 yards left, and he's going to... Looks like he's got about an eight iron. This crowd has gone deadly silent. Cinderella story. Out of nowhere, a former greenskeeper now about to become the Masters champion. The plot is hard to follow and might be even irrelevant. And it's going up against Tin Cup. Our number five came out in 1996. Apparently Kevin Costner turned down the role of the bad guy in Happy Gilmore to play the other golf movie that came out in 1996, which of course was Tin Cup. In the movie, he falls in love with a therapist played by Rene Rosso. And he has a magical caddy played by Cheech Marin from Cheech and Chong. He sort of turns around his career and manages to get into the U.S. Open. You don't need an eagle to qualify. You need to practice playing it safe. No mistakes. Qualify, I want the course record. Now give me the lumber. You want the driver? Hit the driver, tin cup. Yes, I'm going with a safe shot, boys. But you know, sometimes I fan that too. You better give me the three. And sometimes I catch that three a little thin too. Don't do this. And I've hit flyers with the four. Hit the damn ball, right? Mm -hmm. I hooked my five. I shanked the six. Sculled the eight. Batted the nine. Chili dipped the wedge. And I played the sand. Hunter? Yeah. There is old Mr. Three Wiggle, isn't there? The movie is directed by Ron Shelton, who directed White Men Can't Jump and Bull Door. He has a good uh, pedigree in terms of great sports movies. Caddyshack, Tin Cup. Chris, I think we have a sense of where your vote may go on this. But maybe rather than telling us right away, what drew you to Caddyshack? You said you, you grew up in the 80s, right? So I grew up in the 70s. And for me, that, that generation of, of early SNL guys and National Lampoon, that was my thing. So this movie really came out when I was I don't know, 12 and it was it really hit the sweet spot for me it was a new kind of comedy you know started by Animal House it's hard to say what the movie's about because the movie really isn't about anything there was a script that they sort of threw away while they were making the movie because these guys Chevy Chase and Bill Murray and Ryan Greenfield were ad-libbing such great stuff that they were like you know what let's just follow the funny and we'll you know figure this thing out in the editing room I think this place is restricted, Wang, so don't tell them you're Jewish. Okay, fine. I set my friend up here with the whole schmear. You know, clubs, bags, shoes, gloves, shirt, pants. Hey, orange balls, I'll have a box of those. Give me a box of those naked lady tees and give me two of those. Give me six of those. Oh, this is the worst looking hat I ever saw. Well, you buy a hat like this, I'll bet you get a free bowl of soup, huh? So the whole subplot about Caddy put by Michael O'Keefe and his Irish girlfriend, that was supposedly the main part of the story, and that all got pretty much wound up on the cutting room floor coupled with the fact that there were you know, a lot of people involved in making this movie were totally popped up on cocaine while they were making it including the production team you're saying not only the actors the actors the crew i mean everyone this was shot in florida in 1979 which was like the yeah. gateway into the country for cocaine at the time it was just a big party and how you shouldn't make a movie for some miraculous reason it all worked out but nine times out of ten it wouldn't I love this movie. I, I wrote an article about it for Sports Illustrated 10 years ago on it would have been the 30th anniversary. And when I was doing all the interviews for it, I just realized as I was talking to everyone and how crazy the production was that there was more to it than just a magazine article, which is how it sort of planted the seed for a book. Would you say it's one of your favorite movies and that was sort of gave you that extra passion to chase down all the players and put it together in book form? Because I read the SI article, yeah. which is super fun. And I obviously we encourage everyone to read Chris's article in, S in Sports Illustrated and follow up and, and buy the book and read it as well. I only so far managed to read the article and it's super fun. Will, have you, had you heard of Rodney Dangerfield before this movie? No, I hadn't. I, I definitely don't have a lot of history with uh, 
you know, like comedians from the 80s and, and this time period in general. Uh, my, my younger side's definitely showing through here. Chris, for context, Will's a 90s kid, I guess. Uh, 90s kid. Catching the end of Bill Murray, but uh, Dangerfield and even Chevy Chase is, uh, is past your time, you're saying. Oh, yeah, yeah. What's your impression of seeing Caddyshack? Because you're seeing it in an entirely different context than Chris. Yeah, so I saw it for the first time last year, actually. Um, so, you know, a long time after it came out. I think I have a really weird experience with it because I'm seeing Bill Murray after I've seen him in all these other movies, you know, like Groundhog Day and Ghostbusters. Yeah. And I feel like I've seen so many movies that really took inspiration from Caddyshack that it feels they were derivative of Caddyshack. But since I saw those other movies first, it feels like Caddyshack wasn't as original to me, which is like obviously not true. But I think I would have had a much greater appreciation for it if I'd seen it, you know, outside of the context of all the other movies that have taken cues from it in a way. Is there sort of a thread of movies that you would suggest are the direct children of Caddyshack or maybe a third generation, fourth generation? Or yeah, I mean, I think like all of the sort of, all the SNL starring movies from, from the 80s, you know, whether it's the, uh, the Chevy Chase movies, the, the, the Belushi, like Blues Brothers, Akron movies, Eddie Murphy movies, all of that sort of came out of this period. It's emblematic of a period in comedy when things were really changing. Comedy, all of a sudden, at this point in the late 70s, early 80s, was much more countercultural. It was, you look at what the big comedies were in before Caddyshack and before Animal House, it was a lot of Smokey and the Bandit or Clint Eastwood with an orangutan, corny stuff aimed at parents. And, yeah. and this was a movie that was aimed at teenagers and college students, had a much more irreverent, dirty, snobs versus slobs appeal to it. It was sort of rebelling against something. It kind of reminded me of Slapshot, and they came out around the same time. I mean, the difference is, as you've said, Caddyshack is really just a vehicle for these comedic masterminds to be out of control, gonzo, while Slapshot has a dramatic actor in the lead, though I think you know he's playing for comedy. And it has more of a through line. Is there sort of a relationship between Slapshot and Caddyshack? I think they both sort of champion the blue collar labor and versus capital sort of thing. I mean, if you did not to get like too academic about it, but there's definitely a sense of these blue collar guys fighting against the man, whether it's Paul Newman or whether it's the young caddy in, in Caddyshack, Michael, played by Michael O'Keefe. They reflect the time a little bit. I guess Slapshot is coming more out. crude. It sort of it makes its bed on its on its crude humor as opposed to Caddyshack. Caddyshack's pretty crude too. I, I don't know that it's it's not the kind of movie you watch, you know, with your with your pinky sticking out. It's pretty crude. So I think they're both. They're, it's a good comparison. Just that back then you couldn't have been a bigger movie star than Paul Newman and a more respected one. Whereas Caddyshack, these guys were. For the most part, it was a lot of their first time in a Hollywood movie, and they sort of felt like they didn't have much to lose, so they just were completely riffing and, and going off book. Chris, is it fair to say that your choice, though, between these two is going to be Caddyshack? It is, but I do, this is a hard, hard choice because I really love Tin Cup. I think it's a really great movie. The romance is a mess in Tin Cup, though, no? Did you, was that believable at all? No, but the golf, no, you're right about that. That's the sort of the, the soft part of the movie. But the stuff between Kevin Costner and Cheech Marin, I thought was really, really good. Man, you build yourself a life just to prove you could handle the shovel. You know why I'd still hit that shot? Look at that look in your face. I'd hit it again because that shot was a defining moment. And when a defining moment comes along, you define the moment or the moment defines you. I did not shrink from the challenge. I rose to 1981, Fort Washington Golf Club, Fresno, California. Ring a bell? I was playing to win. Tried to hit that same impossible cut three wood into the wind from a hilly lie? I was playing to win. Five in a row, out of bounds. Till you finally pulled it off and tapped it in for a crowd-pleasing 13. When a 12 would have got you on the tour. Now that was a defining moment. Greatness courts failure, Romeo. You may be right, boss, but you know what? Sometimes par is good enough to win. That really gets out of the heart of what the golfer-caddy relationship is all about. And I think it's really a really solid, solid movie. In terms of the movie with the best golf scenes, I think Tin Cup does a really good job with that. It just also happens to have a, a romance and character that are just super unlikable. I think Kevin Costner is kind of a douche in that. But yeah, I gotta go with Caddyshack <laughs> as well. Okay, great. So Caddyshack is gonna move on 
And let's go right then to, to the matchup it has, which is going up against number one, Pat and Mike. It came out in 1952. It stars the real life couple, Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy. And Hepburn's character is a multi-sports star that pushes back against the chauvinist 1950s culture. Tracy is her shady sports agent. I'm so glad you plan to look after me as well as you do your horse. You want a joke? Joke. But I'm here to tell you something. Someday you'll realize something. And that something is this. Look, everybody's sitting around the place. Everybody's sitting around the world. And everybody's brain has got something cooking inside, see? Well, nobody's got a better dream than me. Believe me, I stand them off. What is it? I can see myself with brakes. I can wind up with the top man, the top horse, and the top woman. And like all the great sports movies from back in the day, it has cameos from real-life sports pioneers, including the multi-sport legend Babe Zaharis, who I think is the basis for Hepburn's character. It is going against Caddyshack, of course. Hard to, like, have a, a Caddyshack beat out a movie starring Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn who were so good as a couple. Ronnie Dangerfield and uh, Bill Murray. Like that, that, they don't compete. Yeah, I'm going to go Caddyshack, but it's Pat Mike's a good movie. Movies have a second chance because there's a loser's bracket they can work their way back okay. into. Okay, all right. Yeah, let's save this one for the loser's bracket. How about, how about you, Will? Yeah, I also got to go Caddyshack. I think uh, Pat and Mike is is really good when it's portraying their relationship between Catherine Hepburn and Tracy, but there's a lot of sports scenes that it really just feels this was made because people didn't have sports on TV at the time. So just got to go to the movies and watch very long scenes of people playing, playing those sports. I wonder whether you could see female golf or, you know, women's tennis on TV in the early fifties in the way that this movie allows you to. That's a really good point. So we'll come back to Pat and Mike. Our other second round matchup also features a, a golden oldie. That's number two, the caddy. And obviously it's going against number six, Happy Gilmore. What is the caddy, you may ask? Well, it doesn't have Hepburn and Tracy, but it has another duo in Jerry Lewis and Dean Martin. It's a pseudo-musical. Per their style, Martin plays the straight man, the wannabe pro golfer, and Jerry Lewis is the madcap caddy and his advisor. There's a tournament opening in Santa Barbara in a couple of weeks. You could be the player and I could be the caddy. There's a $500 prize. It would mean work, work, and more work. You have to bear down. You know, I think you're running a fever. I'm no golfer. All you have to do is practice. Very different from Tin Cup in terms of the relationship. It's the source of the famous song that people probably know, That's Amore. When the moon hits your eye like a big pizza pie, that's Amore. When the world seems to shine like you've had too much wine, that's Amore. And it has, again, cameos by real-life golfers like Ben Hogan, Sam Snead, and Byron Nelson. This was my first ever Jerry Lewis movie that I'd seen, which Chris might rightfully be shocked at. It was mine as well. I am a huge Jerry Lewis fan. Not so much Martin and Lewis. Those movies I don't love. But the Jerry Lewis solo movies from the 60s, I think, are unimpeachable and they're amazing. And I'm sorry that your first Jerry Lewis movie was The Caddy. I apologize. But, uh, the Caddy has its charms. I think Jerry Lewis in any situation is pretty funny. But in this case, I definitely think that this is a case where Happy Gilmore sails on. Will, you, as I recall, hated Jerry Lewis in this movie, right? Oh, my God. I was, I don't know if it was just the wrong day or what. I was so annoyed by Jerry Lewis in this one. He's, I just felt like he was doing a high-pitched, annoying voice the whole time. And I feel like it, it might just be like my different comedic sensibilities that it, weren't connecting with the movie, but I'll have to watch some more Jerry Lewis movies. It's obviously got to be a very talented guy, but yeah. It made me appreciate Jim Carrey a bit more because I realize a lot of Jim Carrey humor where it's sort of coming from, particularly in the caddy. But yeah, I can definitely see that. Caddy is not the ideal gateway drug for Jerry Lewis. Almost all these movies have a snobs versus slobs take on them. And even the caddy has that. And, you know, I think Pat and Mike is doing something a little bit more challenging. And so it's interesting how... That's maybe the driving theme in some ways of Caddyshack, and I think of Happy Gilmer, and I think of the Caddy, and Tin Cup, pushing back against the elitism golf has on people. Part of the DNA of a golf movie? Nothing more sort of emblematic, conservative, white-bred American Republican values than golf and golf clubs. Restrictive golf clubs are just sort of an easy thing to poke fun at and make you know, just make sport out of. And uh, I think that it would be hard to make a golf movie that doesn't address that in some way. Very different from, for instance, soccer and hockey. 
It doesn't have that elitism, I think, attached to it whatsoever. Right. So, yes. Let's jump into our loser's bracket to see who's going to make it out and make it into the top three alongside Caddyshack and Happy Gilmer, who have earned their ticket to our big dance next year. First matchup, we have Tin Cup going against Dead Solid Perfect. Based upon what I heard before, I think, Chris and Will, your votes are pretty clear, right? Tin Cup. I'm going to go 10 cup, but I have to shout out that dead solid, perfect opening song that I forgot to mention earlier. That is definitely the best part of the best part of the movie. I'm glad you reminded me, Will, because Chris, do you remember this? They have the same type opening scene. I think in both of them, there is a middle-aged white guy driving a convertible in the South to a song. I was, I was struck by that. But I don't remember. What was the song? Dead solid perfect. Oh, right, okay, okay, right, sure. To make sure that you're, you're, you're sitting down for the right movie, though I guess you couldn't have gone to theaters to, to you know, make that mistake, but at least you know you turned to the right channel. Our other matchup, I think, is the classic that had to happen. We have the 50s Pat and Mike versus Caddy. Very different movies, they have different stars. Which one is your favorite? Yeah, I'm going to go. I think we're going to have our first real uh, fight here. I'm going to go with the caddy. Yeah, and I'm going Pat and Mike here. Wow, okay. So, unfortunately, I have not seen enough Jerry Lewis to change my opinion. So, I'm going to have to side with Will and put Pat and Mike through. When we spoke soccer and hockey, we noticed how there was always that strong woman-driven movie, like Bend It Like Beckham, for instance. You don't see that much in the golf bracket, but I think Pat and Mike does represent that. So I'm not voting for it simply for that reason. Hepburn is a special character on screen in a way that I did not think that about Jerry Lewis. And I don't like the song That's Amore. So uh, it's kind of an yeah, easy vote for me. The, the one like most female driven movie is the oldest one. You don't see that very often. That's when a good we, point. Yeah. When we get to our tennis movies, you see women driven stories, obviously. But uh, I'm not sure why that's absent from golf. All sports have the challenge of sort of women making it into the big time. Movies haven't tried to capture that. Maybe some Hollywood executive might be listening and, and gr- be greenlighting that idea right now. Our last matchup is going to be Tin Cup against Pat and Mike. Two very different movies. Tin Cup versus Pat and Mike? For the Tin final Cup. Tin Cup. And you? And I'm going to side with, side with Chris here with Tin Cup, yeah. Okay, so the Golden Oldies almost made it, but none of them was able to push right through. I think the final three is what the, the bookies probably would have bet on. Caddyshack, Happy Gilmore, and Tin Cup. How would you rank those three top three uh, golf movies? I would go uh, Caddyshack, Tin Cup, Happy Gilmore. The second two are pretty close for me, Tin Cup and Happy Gilmore. Is there a kind of last thing you want to tell us about Caddyshack that I'm sure you mentioned in your book, but people probably don't know, even if they've seen the movie a dozen times? There is a lot of stuff, but I mean, I think the biggest thing is that how sort of chaotic things were and how much people didn't get along. I mean, it looks, it's a, it's a comedy and you generally think that when you're making a comedy, that is the result of people sort of having a good time on set. And though a lot of people were having a good time, the fact is that Ronnie Dangerfield and Ted Knight did not get along at all. <laughs> I think Bill you Murray, see that Bill Murray. Yeah. Well, that works for their characters, but Bill Murray and Chevy Chase hated each other and had been in a fist fight the year before you know, at backstage at Saturday Night Live. So one scene that they have, that, that wasn't in the script. That was something that they wrote, like, on the spot. Can I say something to you? You've been acting psychotically lately. What the hell? Why? Well, I've been a little under strain. I've got to play the smells tomorrow. Smells? Man. What you got to do to smells is you cut the hamstring on the back of his leg right at the bottom. He'll never play golf again. That would work, and I'm, I'm going to call you if I need that help. But seriously, hey. no BS. You ever want to rap or anything? You know, just talk or just, you know, get weird with somebody. You know, buddies for life, I think. I'll drop by. You drop by my place anytime. You got a pool over there? We have a pond in the back. We have a pool and a pond. A pond would be good for you. Natural spring. Oh, yeah. Or, or you know, the pool or the pond. Anything would be good. Thanks for the dope. Both of those guys at the time were pretty uneasy about sharing the screen together because they just didn't know how it would work because there was so much ill will between them. You know, there's just a lot of great little stories about the movie. How did the special effects hold up all these years later? For oh, well, the gopher was terrible then and he's terrible now. So that, <laughs> sort of, that sort of softened on him a little bit. Certainly siding with Bill Murray in terms of that cataclysmic uh, standoff that the two of them have. What's your number one favorite scene in the movie? Oh, geez, that could change from week to week. I'm so deep into it now and I've seen it so many times that it's like the little things that really stand out for me. There's a scene during the dinner dance at the golf club where Spaulding leans over uh, to someone and says, You're going to eat your fat... Oh, to me, that just like 
cracks me up every time I see it because it was a completely ad-libbed line. Uh, anything with Bill Murray works for me. I love the opening when you're just going around the house and you're so confused. You're like, how many people are in this house? Why are they all here? Right. Is this the Caddyshack? <laughs> what is this movie about? Do what you like. Do it Molly, get dressed. You're playing golf today. No, I'm not, Grandpa. I'm playing tennis. You're playing golf and you're going to like it. Hey, You'll get nothing and like it. Let's jump to tennis. I think we're going to have to say goodbye to Will. Hello to Av. Hello. We are going to jump into a different snob sport that might have its own snobs versus slob story. Okay, so we're going to start off here with our, again, our number three, which is Battle of the Sexes versus our number six, Wimbledon. There were a number of tennis movies that did not even make it into our bracket. The reason is there was, I don't think, a single good tennis movie until three years ago. Chris, I think you said at the top that you don't think there's any good tennis movies. It's a really hard sport to, to, to make points are long, the matches are long, it's really hard to distill into a two-hour movie. And unless it's chronicling like one epic match, uh, which some of these movies in the bracket do, it's really hard to wrap your arms around. I do think that there's one movie on this list I really like, but the rest of them I could really do without. Seven Days in Hell, Borg vs. McEnroe, Battle of the Sexes, In the Realm of Perfection, all came out in the last two, three years. What was there going on in L.A. that they decided, okay, it's, it's time for tennis movies? I don't know. Maybe they really liked the scene with Richie Tenenbaum and the Royal Tenenbaums and thought <laughs> we need more of this. So we said our number three is Battle of the Sexes. It came out in 2017, the magical year for tennis movies, it seems. And, of course, it tells about the 1973 infamous match between the number one women's player at the time, Billie Jean King, and the aging male star Bobby Riggs. Eureka, Billy James! Bobby Riggs, I had a great idea. Male chauvinist pig versus hairy leg feminist. You're still a feminist, right? I'm a tennis player who happens to be a woman. Don't hang up. And by the way, I shave my legs. Famous match then. It's clearly famous enough to have a movie made about it many years later. The stars are Emma Stone and Steve Carroll. It's going against a 2004 movie, Wimbledon, which I believe is the earliest movie we have on our list. Wimbledon has Paul Bettany, it has Kirsten Dunst. Again, it's aging tennis star that gets a second wind when he romances a young and up-and-coming American star, and they're both competing to win Wimbledon. So both of these movies are about an older man, a younger woman. Which one do you like more and why, Chris? This is really a tough choice just because I really don't particularly care for either one of them. <laughs> I guess if I had to pull trigger, I'd say Battle of the Sexes, but it's really a pillow fight. You know what I mean? It's not, these are not, I don't care for either one. A lot of critics liked Battle of the Sexes. Why, why, what did it do for you? I thought that it got really stuck in the 70s-ness of it. It's like they tried to find the most garish wig they could for each person, <laughs> the, all the clothes. What you think the 70s is going to be, they take it that, they, they do that and they turn it up to 11. It just, it felt like really cartoony to me. I saw it at its world premiere at the Telluride Film Festival when it came out and everyone was cheering like mad when after it ended and I, I just it was one of those things where it was like am I in a different room than, than what's going on here <laughs> yeah it's like yeah. someone who wasn't alive in the 70s idea of what the 70s were yeah sometimes you have to like blink to make sure you're not looking at Austin Powers on screen right <laughs> I actually liked Battle of the Sexes although more as just like a regular movie than a tennis movie the tennis parts of the movie I think didn't really do much for me but the off the court drama of Bobby Riggs trying to deal with his legacy and his reputation and Billie Jean King's dealing with her sexuality and the equal pay issues I thought there was just there was some interesting stuff there I didn't think like the actual match between the two of them and anything connected to that was really that interesting I thought it was overall a pretty good movie which is I think a lot more than you could say for Wimbledon which I think I recall watching it on a plane a bunch of years ago and I guess it's you know <laughs> a pretty decent plane movie for by that standard although I guess these days you could watch pretty much any movie on a plane so that description is kind of out the window at this point Wimbledon is borderline unwatchable though the plot is ridiculous the characters are not at all interesting you know it has the worst I think romantic relationship I've ever seen in yeah it, it's There's no chemistry yeah 
Yeah, it's completely ridiculous. There were basically only two things I liked about this movie. Number one is that Jamie Lannister is in it, which was a pleasant surprise because obviously I didn't know who he was when I saw this all those years ago. And then John Favreau and Paul Bettany share a scene together, which is probably <laughs> more scenes that they that they share together across all 23 Marvel movies. So that was pretty fun to <laughs> together. It's just really bad. And then, you know, it's obviously this movie was 15 years ago and probably wasn't subject to the same scrutiny as these movies are today but the movie literally ends with offhandedly saying after he wins Wimbledon oh by the way she also won Wimbledon and like we obviously don't see right, aspect right. Of her playing and it's I think it says she won Wimbledon and the U.S. Open twice and obviously that's not part of the movie. I do give the movie credit though it uses that hokey tennis line love is both an emotion and a score in tennis okay. and love means nothing in tennis zero it only means you lose. I'm not sure if any other movie in the tennis bracket managed to push that in. I think they used it twice in Wimbledon. Yeah, I'm but, sure they all thought of that line. Yeah, but the rest were wise enough to move away from it. Wimbledon <laughs> is falling out pretty quickly. Battle of the Sexes will move on. Let's go to our other first round bracket. Again, it's a four and five Titanic matchup as far as I'm concerned. We have Seven Days in Hell as our number four going up against our number five, Borg vs. McEnroe. Seven Days in Hell came out in 2015. It's a spoof documentary of what Chris referred to before as the challenge of filming a long match. This is a made-up seven-day-long Wimbledon semifinal between two tennis stars played by Andy Sandberg and Kit Harington, and they're joined in the movie by a usual suspect for these movies, John McEnroe, and Serena Williams, Lena Dunham, David Copperfield, Michael Sheen, John Hamm, the list goes on. It's going up against Bird vs. McEnroe. It came out again in the 2017 year, and it is the true-life 1980 Wimbledon final between Bjorn Borg, the clinical Swedish champion that was on his way to a fifth straight Wimbledon title, and the abrasive up-and-coming American star, John McEnroe. You don't understand what the fuck it takes to play tennis. Shut up! But people you know what? I go out there and I give everything for this game? Everything. Everything in me gets left out on that fucking court. And none of you understand it because none of you do it! McEnroe is played by Shia LeBouf, who we saw, of course, in our uh, golf bracket. There's a lot of Swedes and Danish people playing all the Scandinavian roles. I actually think Borg versus McEnroe is, is the one really, really good tennis movie. I've never been a huge Shia LaBeouf fan, but I think this is the, the role he was sort of born to play. I was pleasantly surprised that the movie focused more on Borg than McEnroe. I mean, it seemed like McEnroe would be the obvious center of attention for a movie just because he's such a hothead and he's so such a fiery character. But I liked that we really got into the head of Borg a lot. I thought this was a terrific, terrific movie. I reviewed this one for Entertainment Weekly, gave it a B plus at the time. Seven Days in Hell, I laughed, and I laughed a lot for about 12 minutes, and I sort of felt like, you know, that's where it belongs. <laughs> I, I, it would have been a really good Lonely Island short film, you know, okay. I don't, as a 43-minute long HBO movie, uh, it felt like they were sort of running the joke into the ground a little bit. Who would you say Seven Days in Hell is the best Kit Harington performance we've ever seen? How do you do it? Yeah, well, uh, when I'm playing, I serve the ball, and the man opposite me on the other side of the court, he plays it back to me. Now then, I try to hit to a place in the court that he's not standing anymore. And if he manages to reach that and play it back, if it lands short, I run forward. And then I try and get it to another place in the court that he's not standing anymore. And sometimes it goes outside of these lines on the side of the court. And if that happens, the ump, he shouts, out. And that's, um, that's very bad if that happens to me. But if it happens to the other player, I really like that. I understand how the game of tennis is played. I guess I meant, what's your overall strategy? Yeah, yeah, indubitably, yeah. Um, I haven't seen that many because I didn't watch Game of Thrones, but I, uh, I would, sure, why not? I think he matches up with Shia LaBeouf in terms of this being the perfect vehicle for him. I think I like Seven Days in Hell a little bit more than Chris did, although I would say kind of its strength is its weakness in a way that other types of this movie have, they've tried to stretch out to be 90 minutes. And I think that's where they just completely fail. And they, they were smart enough to limit it to 40 minutes and doesn't overstay its welcome, in my opinion. But at the same time, you know, it's only 40 minutes, which is kind of like a an average length TV show at this point. So it's even hard to call this a movie. It's really more of, I don't even know, a short feature or short film, whatever it is. You know, I thought it was very funny. It's not really about tennis. Tennis is kind of just like a vehicle for all sorts of other jokes. Do think they did a good job of capturing less like the quiet broadcast and sound of a tennis match and use that 
to allow comedic moments to occur in a funny way. So that being said, Borg versus McEnroe is actually a good movie. It does a really good job of taking these two personalities that we all understand just through real life are presented as very different types of people. One is very quiet and stoic, and the other one, you know, McEnroe is famous for his encore tirades and really uses flashbacks to childhood to really kind of flesh that out and why each of them are the way they are and shows us how they really had more in common than you would think just from their public personas. And I thought that was really cool to see. One thing I really like about Seven Days in Hell is it captures certain 2015 humorous references. I saw the movie for the first time now in 2019. And for instance, I don't know if both you guys remember, I don't know where it came from, but there were all these weird Taiwanese animated short simulations that were popping up everywhere online and in, in news pieces in like 2014 and 15. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. And so Seven Days in Hell just goes crazy with this completely gratuitous sexual Taiwan animated simulation fake clip in the, the prison scene, obviously. And I hadn't seen any of those Taiwanese uh, animations since, you know, in the last five years. And so to see it pop up on the screen in this movie, I thought it was just so ridiculous, such a blast from the past of something I never understood at the time. So we'll jump forward to our number one, which is Top Spin. Now this might be a controversial choice for our number one movie since it is table tennis. It's a documentary that came out in 2014 about three American teenagers competing to make the 2012 London Olympics. I sometimes wish table tennis was like a team sport. You know, you see on TV all these people on a team and you see when they win together, they're happy together and they lose, they're sad together. And they're always giving each other support. And that's when I realized that table tennis is a lonely sport sometimes. And of course it's going up against Borg versus McEnroe. Explain to me why it's the number one seed, because it's the highest Rotten Tomatoes rating? Yeah, for some reason, critics really, really are okay. a dog about Topspin. I have a theory about why that is. First of all, it's a documentary, and it's a well-meaning documentary, and I think that automatically adds about 15 points on, for any movie when it comes to the review, favorable reviews. I mean, I think it's fine. To me, it's nothing I would tell people to go out of their way to watch, even though I think... Who doesn't love ping pong? Or table tennis, as I'm going to insist on calling it, to defend its inclusion in this tennis bracket. To echo what Chris said, for you know those of you who listened to our recent episode on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I was called out for including Boogie Nights on my list of movies about Hollywood, which I think was far less of a transgression than including a movie about ping pong in a tennis bracket. Top Spin was, as Chris said, it's okay. The only thing I thought was interesting about it was they kind of play off this theme of these kids who are playing a sport in which nobody in the history of the world has ever really become famous or rich from. And there's something interesting about that compared to other mm. sports, where at least there's that upside potential of becoming a superstar and going pro or going to, you know, becoming a, a household name in the Olympics. And there's just none of that with Topspin. They're just like, it's all love of the game, which was just a nice thing to see. But it's, you know, a totally generic documentary as far as I'm concerned. And it doesn't hold a candle to Borg versus McEnroe. Our other second round matchup uh, with an easy victory for Borg versus McEnroe, which will scoot its way into our, into our tournament next year, is our number two, In the Realm of Perfection, another documentary going against Battle of the Sexes. In the Realm of Perfection, again, came out of the magical year for tennis movies. And it's a French documentary that weaves poetic and philosophical ruminations with raw footage of everyone's favorite tennis movie fan, John McEnroe, at the 1984 French Open. Nice guys don't win in this game. It's a sport for killers. John McEnroe always finds a way to win. What the movie doesn't really say, but which is important to appreciate, is that McEnroe was having the best season of all time for a tennis player when he went 82 and three. So that's why he was in the realm of perfection. And then he ran into the 1984 French Open, which is what this movie uh, shows. It's our number two seed. It's going against Battle of the Sexes. Which one do you like more? I like this more. Just It does something interesting. It, it takes raw footage from McEnroe at the height of his powers at the French Open and sort of turns it into this artsy meditation where it becomes more than a sports movie, but just sort of like this philosophical examination of a, about like uh, someone playing freakishly well. I liked it. I didn't love it. Certainly better than Battle of the Sexes. I actually thought this was really good. At the very least, it was extremely unique. It's pretty much unlike any documentary I've ever seen before. It's kind of like a documentary within a documentary because a lot of it focuses on these tennis training videos and 
uses that as a vehicle to talk about just like the technical precision of playing tennis, which more than other sports, you know, if you've played either of these sports, like, you know, when you hit it right, that it's just going to go. And you know that if you hit it wrong, it's not, it's all just mechanics. And I thought it was just really interesting to, to watch a documentary that really focused on that. I thought it also raised interesting questions in kind of a meta way for the like documentary about a documentary in terms of to what extent McEnroe's on court outbursts might've been performative and was just like part of an edge that he used to get over his opponents, which I never had thought about before and until I saw this movie. So that was really interesting. Really interesting to me that of these six movies, four of them, John McEnroe appears in, obviously two of them are directly about him, but he also appears as a broadcaster in Wimbledon and in Seven Days in Hell. I don't know what that says other than he might just be the only marketable tennis player in the entire history of the sport. You know, I'm a little older than you guys, so I, I think watching McEnroe at the height of his powers was like watching Tiger Woods at the height of his powers or LeBron James at the height of his powers or Michael Jordan. I mean, it really was like watching someone who was head and shoulders better than anyone who had previously played that sport, but also was head and shoulders more entertaining than anyone who had ever played that sport. I mean, he really, I think that's why there are so many tennis movies that focus on him because he really is singular when it comes to the sport of tennis. Other people may have more titles, but I don't know that I'd want to see a movie about Roger Federer or even Nadal or, or you know, Djokovic. I, I would want to see as many McEnroe movies as you could possibly throw at me. Yeah, when I think Federer, I think of those shaving commercials. That's about the sort of... <laughs> right. That's about the appeal that he has for me. McEnroe, I think the reputation he has for my generation, children of the 80s, who weren't able to really see him play so much, is just his bombastic on-court manner. And we sometimes we lose the appreciation for how masterful he was. Let's go to our loser's bracket because there's still a chance to get a third finalist in here. First, we're going to go with Seven Days in Hell against Wimbledon. I'd go with the funny one. Uh, seven Days in Hell. Yeah. The intentionally funny one. Seven Days in Hell. <laughs> <laughs> You're saying Wimbledon qualifies as a comedy if it qualifies as anything. Right. Yeah, I'm going to agree again. Seven Days in Hell at least was enjoyable to watch. Wimbledon, I really had very little redeeming about it. It sounds like it was a tough plane ride when you saw the movie back in the day. First thing is I had to watch it again for this bracket because I had completely forgotten it. Top Spin against Battle of the Sexes, our other loser's bracket matchup. Jeez, that's tough. Just because I didn't like Battle of the Sexes so much and so many people did, I'm going to go with Top Spin. Do you love those moments as a critic when you had the opportunity to be contrarian? Sure, absolutely. Because yeah. I feel like it's too easy just to end up following the herd and, oh, yeah, everyone's liking that movie. I'll sign I up. I mean, there are some who go out of their way to be contrarian. I don't, <laughs> I don't think that serves the movie very well. But like, it is fun when it's, sometimes you, you find yourself having a completely different take on something and wondering, how am I the only one who's, who's not enjoying this? It validates the perspective you're bringing to the, to the industry. Av, what's your perspective on the industry of topspin and battle of the sexes? Yeah, I guess we'll have our first disagreement here in a, a very low stakes way, but I, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I like I battle of the sexes. I thought it was a pretty good movie. I don't think it's a great tennis movie, but topspin isn't a tennis movie at all. So we'll go with battle of the sexes. I'm going to quote Chris, but vote with Av that Battle of the Sexes was the better comedy for me. In a matchup of movies that I also didn't particularly like, I'm going to have to go with the comedy. That means Battle of the Sexes is going against Seven Days in Hell for the last ticket to our March 2020 64 movie mega sports tournament. Chris, Seven Days in Hell is the comedy you liked. Battle of the Sexes is a movie you voted down twice. I'm going to go with the sweep and vote it down again. Seven Days in Hell. Pile on at this point. I, I think Seven Days in Hell <laughs> is, is a more fun watch. I laughed a lot when I watched it. Battle of the Sexes, I think, is pretty good, but I think more people would like Seven Days in Hell. So let's go with that. Chris, our three finalists are Borg, McEnroe, In the Realm of Perfection, and Seven Days in Hell. Would these have been the three movies you would have predicted from the beginning? The top three tennis movies of all time? I never really thought that we would be able to find three to begin with. So... Uh, sure. I, I mean, I really thought that it would be Borg versus McEnroe and then maybe two others. didn't know what they would be. I just knew that it, one of them would not be Wimbledon. Caddyshack and Happy Gilmer are such different comedies. A conversion of either one of them hasn't been able to be made about tennis. Because again, I think tennis and golf, there's a lot of parallels. That snob versus slob, that sort of country club atmosphere. Caddyshack and Happy did that for golf. So why can't someone do that for tennis? Maybe they are right now and we don't know about it. I mean, maybe the great tennis comedy is being made as we speak. To give Caddyshack another moment of shine, why did they choose golf? Could have 
poke fun at the, the elitists in their little white shorts playing tennis. The story was really, the, after Animal House, Harold Ramis and his Animal House co-writer Doug Kenny, every studio in town wanted their next movie because Animal House was such a hit. And they went in to pitch a few ideas, none of which really caught fire. And they remembered an old idea that Brian Doyle Murray, someone they knew from the National Lampoon, Second City had had about a comedy of a really conservative golf up. Brian Doyle Murray came on to, uh, to write it with them. The Murray brothers, they were all caddies as kids in the North Shore of Chicago. It's very autobiographical, that whole movie. The young caddy played by Michael O'Keefe, that is based on one of the older Murray brothers who won a golf scholarship and a lot of the crazy stories like Baby Ruth in the pool. That was something that happened when they were at school. There's a lot of Murray brothers in Caddyshack. I'm going to try to sound like a movie snob for a second, if you'll allow me, Chris. You can feel free to laugh out louder <laughs> internally. I went to my first film festival last week. I had a chance to speak with the director of Genesis, the new French-Canadian movie. His background is documentary. And so I asked him sort of how much of Genesis is based on his personal experience. And he said every director in fictional movies should mainly be drawing upon autobiography. But if they aren't doing it, they actually still are doing it and just aren't being honest. So Interesting. Caddyshack, a movie that I think one would see, and if they haven't had a chance to read your book, which they really should, say, oh, there's no way any of this is based upon anything that ever happened. And yet it's also, as you said, very autobiographical. Absolutely. One other thing I just want to add on in the realm of perfection, no movie comes to mind, and certainly none of the movies that I've watched as part of this bracket, either for the tennis movies, the hockey movies, where it's actually about the playing of the sport in a way that most sports movies are not. Usually the sport is a vehicle that's used to tell a story about a character or a group of people or race relations in some time period. And this is really about it focuses on the individual player playing the sport and how the sport is played. And I just thought that was really interesting to see and something that I don't think I've ever seen before in a sports movie. I think that hopefully one day someone will adapt the Milos storyline from the comeback episode of Seinfeld into a full-length feature, and then we'll finally get a great tennis movie. <laughs> yeah, well said. Chris, what's your favorite sports movie of all time? What's your pick to win our bracket next year? Oh, God, it's really tough. You can certainly say Caddyshack. No, I, I, don't think, I don't think I would. I, I honestly, the movie I like the most or, the, or what I think is actually the best movie movie? Your favorite, the movie you like the most, the movie you keep coming back mm. to. I have to say be Rocky. There's a reason that's pretty much the soundtrack to any sports movie when we imagine one in our heads. It definitely has the DNA, I think, of a sports movie down pat. Do you think any of the six finalists we had today have a chance at going far in the tournament we're having next year where we take the 64 best sports movies from all sports. So Caddyshack, Happy Gilmore, Tin Cup, Ford vs. McEnroe, In the Realm of Perfection, and Seven Days in Hell. Caddyshack will go pretty far. I don't think it'll win, but I think it'll go pretty far. It's been called the best sports comedy of all time. Perhaps that was by you. I just saw that blurb on, <laughs> on one of the reviews. You would imagine the best sports comedy of all time should go pretty far in a sports movie tour. A lot of people are going to get in the tank for Bull Durham, too. That's another great sports comedy. But yeah, I think Caddyshack will go pretty far. Best Adam Sandler movie of all time. May not. Happy Gilmer, we never knew you. Chris, what are you doing now? How can listeners find you? How can they look for your next project? Well, I'm sort of working on a, a book right now, follow the Caddyshack book. It's on a different topic. And I'm getting my feet wet with it now, so I'm not like really comfortable going too much into it but is a movies related book and i'm doing writing for various magazines right now the best way to follow me is probably on twitter it's at chris nashawati when we were talking about getting you on i listened to an interview talked about how bill murray to be interviewed for his book and his story and that inspired me to say hey you know we can reach out to chris and uh if he's half as nice as bill was to him that I'm sure he'll respond pretty quickly. And you were, know, <laughs> you were much more than half as nice. I'm so, easier to get in touch with than, than he is. I, I, yeah, I heard from your description. It sounds like he's a, he's a difficult fish to hook. Listeners can catch Caddyshack, The Making of a Hollywood Cinderella Story. You can order it, Chris's book. You can look up for his next one. You can follow him on Twitter. You can ping him about his favorite sports movies, his favorite movies in general. Where do you share your reviews? Is Twitter, or you just you write reviews uh, for a number of different publications? Uh, yeah, I do, and they'll I'll go up on the Twitter under my Twitter handle. I'll I'll post them all there. So so just follow me there. Last thought: What movie are you most looking forward to 
looking at the last few months of this year? I think I'm probably most excited for the Christopher Nolan movie. I mean, that's always get excited about his movies. It's yeah. like the Tarantino effect. It's, it's those special directors who have the power to make their own movies. To get a Tarantino movie and a, uh, a Chris Nolan movie in the same year is, is pretty sweet. And a Scorsese movie. That's right. I'm looking forward to that, too. Chris, if we could ever have you on again in the future, that would be a pleasure. Thank you so, so much. It was really fun. There was no one, I think, who could have given us the down low on both tennis and golf movies. And uh, be in touch. Thank you, guys. It was a lot of fun. Thanks a lot, Chris. That ball was in by about a mile. You people here are gut and senile. Don't be noisy. There's a good chap. You're awake the line guard. She's having a nap. Screwball! You call yourself an umpire, you're a screwball! Play on. You're being rather naughty. Kindly play on. I won't play on till you change your call. You didn't even see the ball. I come over here to play a game, but you blind your reactions at the same.